Hi guys, welcome back. This is Barbarossa, Apocalypse in the East. My name's Harry, and I'll be your host. This week, we're covering the Eastern Front from July 2nd to July 10th. Like last episode, I've posted a link to an animated map in the description in case you want more exact details and visualization of where different units were, where they went. Also, if you're confused about where units belong to, what armies, what sectors, I advise you just to look up Operation Barbarossa, Order of Battle on Wikipedia, and I'll get it. I've also posted my sources in the description. If you recall, Army Group North had seen a good bit of success in the first week of action. They had dealt heavy damage to Red Army forces of the Northwestern Front, nearly completed the capture of Lithuania, and had taken most of Latvia. Something I didn't mention last episode, which is relevant to the region, is that on June 25th, Finland declared war on the USSR. This primarily served to tie up Soviet forces in the Leningrad area and prevent their, their redeployment to aid the Northwestern Front. Where we ended last week, Army Group North had achieved the first stage of their objectives, seizing bridgeheads over the Dvina River. Now they prepared for a further advance. This second stage would prove more difficult, as Field Marshal Wilhelm von Lieb was under pressure both to continue towards Leningrad, while also supporting Army Group Center's northern flank. To take advantage of the precarious state of Soviet forces, attacks would be conducted immediately without waiting for resupply or for infantry to catch up to the Panzer forces. Attacks began forth before dawn on July 2nd. Air support was not possible due to poor weather. Strong Soviet resistance in front of Manchjan's 56th Corps in the wider Dagavapils area, sorry my stutter, prevented early gains. But the 56th, with aid from elements of Reinhardt's 41st Corps, managed to break through. For its part, the 41st Corps had little difficulty breaking Red Army forces in the Yakupils area, advancing over 50 kilometers towards Ostros. The next day saw more success for German forces, as Soviet resistance began to crumble. Both the 41st and the 56th Corps broke through enemy defenses and advanced rapidly. Forward elements of the 1st Panzer Division were within 10 kilometers of Ostrov. This was also the first time in Barbarossa, so far as I know, that specifically Russian borders were breached. Soviet commanders and Stavka representatives were desperately trying to organize resistance, hoping that forces redeployed from the northern front could make the difference. But the entrance of Finland into the war made this difficult, with northern front commander Markian Popov resisting any transfers out of his front. On June 29th, the 1st Mechanized Corps transferred on Yorgi Zhukov's personal orders, but its movement to meet German forces was painstakingly slow. On July 4th, German forces managed to break further into Ostrov, capturing essential bridges late in the day. Finally, by early morning July 5th, the 1st Mechanized Corps, as well as the 41st Rifle Corps, was able to attack the 1st Panzer Division in Ostrov. The appearance of KV heavy tanks disheartened German forces, and the 1st Mechanized was able to destroy several small German units, almost recovering a vital bridge. However, a lack of infantry and artillery, as well as superior German coordination, halted these successes. Another attack was attempted, this time with better preparation, but German reinforcements had already arrived. By July 6, German troops had completely captured Ostrov, and Soviet forces were now attempting to hold Skulf. German forces quickly moved towards Skulf starting on the 7th, securing positions only 12 kilometers from the city by the day's end. The 3rd Tank Division made a valiant attempt to stop the 6th Panzer Division from seizing a crossing over the Velikaya River, but were unsuccessful, although they did manage to slow the crossing. By July 9th, elements of the 41st Corps occupied Skulf. The Stalin line had been penetrated. However, the battles at Skolv and Ostrov did provide time to build a blocking position at Luga, about 140 kilometers from Leningrad. 
With this, Soviet forces hoped to halt the German advance well before Leningrad proper. As of yet, German forces had seen little to no action in Estonia. Additionally, the bulk of the 16th and 18th armies had spent most of their time force marching just to catch up with the Panzer and motorized forces. An order issued to Army Group North on July 8th recognized this. It reaffirmed the end goal of capturing Leningrad and that this would be primarily done by Panzer Group 4. Indeed, Panzer Group 4 was expected to secure its own flanks for the time being, a job typically reserved for the infantry. Once the infantry had caught up, the 16th Army would protect the eastern flank and the 18th, the western flank of the Panzer Group. The 26th Army Corps, under the 18th Army, was detached to clear Soviet forces from Estonia in what was expected to be a fairly simple and easy operation. It's important here to recognize both the essential role of infantry in the war, as well as the particular strain they are experiencing during Operation Barbarossa. Admittedly, most of the major actions have been led by tank forces and will continue to be for the war. However, it is the infantry's job to secure these gains. Infantry also plays an important role in anti-tank warfare, clearing minefields and destroying anti-tank guns, which obviously tanks aren't the best at doing. The fact that German advances have been so successful here too, despite frequently lacking significant infantry support, is largely due to Soviet incompetence not really German skill. Germans were certainly skilled, especially tactically, but Soviet incompetence rears its head over and over again. The spoil could have been crippling blows against German forces. And although the infantry had faced relatively little combat these last two weeks, they were exhausted by constant force marches over difficult terrain in what was becoming increasingly bad weather. For instance, the 11th Infantry Division had marched 350 kilometers in just 11 days. For my American listeners, that's nearly 20 miles a day, and that's with a full military pack that could weigh 20-25 kilograms. These soldiers were deprived of rest and supply, which would severely reduce their effectiveness when they did see combat. In the air, the events of this week or so had gone poorly for the Soviets. The advantages of the Luftwaffe in tactics, airplane quality, and the massive damages they had inflicted the first week continued to pay dividends, and German forces enjoyed widespread air superiority in Army Group North area of operations. In many areas now, the initial overwhelming Soviet numerical superiority had been turned to German numerical superiority due to the extent of damage the Red Air Force suffered. In the area, the Red Air Force lost about 200 planes in the first week of July, while Luftflotte 1's combat losses were rather minimal. Still, the Red Air Force in the area was making steps forward. The command structure was adjusted, granting Air Force's independent command and restructuring aerial formations for increased flexibility. On the German side, Luftflotte 1 was progressively spread thinner and thinner as, as its area of operations grew, while combat and mechanical losses began to wear down its strength. What this meant is that priority had to be given to major objectives, and secondary operations like mopping up or anti-infantry battles were usually accomplished without air support. Even at these major objectives, though, the Red Air Force was offering resistance. The airspace over Skov was the site of a five-day battle. Ostrov also saw some air combat. Looking critically at the sector over this period, German forces were still able to preempt and defeat Soviet troops in the area. Soviet troops remained poorly coordinated, although firmly resisting, and remained on the back foot. However, there were some cracks beginning to show in Army Group North. Moving to Army Group Center, hopefully we'll recall that Army Group Center had seen the most spectacular success the week prior. 
Prioritized in men and weapons, they were able to rapidly advance on the flanks of the Soviet Western Front. By the end of the week, they had captured the major city of Minsk and encircled the better part of the entire Western Front. German commanders differed in how to proceed. Field commanders pressed for a further advance. They thought that eliminating encirclements was the infantry's job and that the panzer forces should strike on. Hitler was more cautious, insisting that the panzer groups hold off until the pockets had been completely cleared. In the last days of June, Guderian's 2nd Panzer Group defied Hitler's orders, claiming it was conducting a reconnaissance in force while actually brushing aside Soviet resistance and pushing east towards Bobrusk. Panzer Group 3 was not as bold, so the two armies found themselves in diff different positions before the main assault. That main assault called for the capture of Smolensk. Smolensk, located 330 kilometers from Minsk and 400 kilometers from Moscow, lay along a line where the Vina and Dnieper rivers converged. If Smolensk fell, the approaches to Moscow would be vulnerable to an attack. Before they could reach Smolensk, however, they would have to cross the Berezina River. In his advance to Babrusk, Guderian had already seized some bridgeheads over the Berezina. Panzer Group 3 was to strike north, crossing the Divina at Politosk. However, these initial attacks split Hoth's forces in half. Three divisions would clear the encirclement at Minsk, while the remaining four pushed east, a sort of compromise between Hitler and the field commanders. Hoth felt secure in splitting his forces because Army Group North Panzer Group 4 had removed most Soviet opposition in the southern portion of their sector. Moreover, Hoth had agreed to cover part of Guderian's sector of the encirclement to allow his Guderian to advance, spreading Panzer Group 3 quite thin. Guderian's Panzer Group 2 was taking a different approach. By the time the major push began, two divisions were already across the Berezina. Two divisions were being used to clear the encirclement at Minsk, while the remainder positioned ahead of the encirclement but behind the Berezina. These forces, assembled as they were, would advance along the Minsk-Moscow highway to the south of Hoth's forces. Supply for these panzer forces was difficult. Belarus, Belarus had some of the more advanced infrastructure in the USSR. However, some important rail and road links were within established pockets of Soviet troops, that is, they were within the encirclement. German army engineers were working feverishly to convert Soviet rail gauge to a German specification, but the distances required simply overwhelmed them. It took engineers until July 4th to establish rail connections at Minsk, meaning they were about a week behind the actual forces. Worsening the situation, German units were using more supplies than expected, in particular, oil. German high command had estimated that the army in the east would consume about 9,000 cubic meters of gasoline a day. In reality, it was more like 11,500 a day. Losses in equipment were also severe. In some cases, many cases, losses were higher due to breakdowns and attrition just driving and marching along terrible roads than combat losses. By July 9th, 25% of the vehicles in the 3rd Panzer Group, that is both tanks and transport vehicles like trucks, were in need of significant repair. A further 15% had been completely lost. When it came to complex and expensive equipment, anything more than basic maintenance and repair required a trip back to the factories in Germany. For the Soviets, their situation was far more dire. On July 1st, the front could only call on the shattered remnants of the 4th and 13th Armies and the 14th Mechanized Corps, as well as the 1st Motorized Moscow Division. The Motorized Moscow Division was a bright spot, but everything else was in tatters. The 14th Mechanized only had two tanks left, while the 4th Army had been reduced to the size of a single division. On July 2nd, Semyon Timoshenko, the defense commissar, was sent to command the Western Front. 
Due to the particularly disastrous situation, the Stavka assigned priority to the central sector. A number of armies, the 16th, 19th, 20th, 21st, and 22nd, were moved into the area and put under Timoshenko's command, as well as the 5th and 7th mechanized corps. Army Group Center was unaware of the extent of Timoshenko's forces. On July 2nd, they estimated he had 24 divisions. In reality, he had 37 divisions in forward positions, with another 44 in rear positions or advancing to the front. This is representative of a failure of German intelligence to anticipate the ability of the USSR to mobilize their reserves, or the speed and scale at which the USSR could actually do this. Timoshenko's first goal had been to prevent a German crossing on the Berezina, but by the time he assumed command, Guderian's panzers had already done this, so he shifted to defending a line formed by the western Divina and Dnieper rivers. In setting up these defenses, they had a few days' time as Army Group Center liquidated the last of the Minsk pocket. Meanwhile, those German forces that were advancing eastward progressively demolished survivors. By July 3rd, forces from both Panzer Group 2 and 3 were over the Berezina. Any delays that these forces had experienced were mostly due to the almost suicidal bravery of the 1st Moscow Motorized Division, which threw itself at German tanks and infantry over and over again. The survivors of the 13th and 4th Armies also stalled for time, whatever remained being smashed to pieces alongside the 20th Mechanized Corps. By July 3rd, the 3rd and 4th Panzer Divisions reached the Dnieper, but were unable to cross it due to flooding. That same night, forces of the 46th Corps expanded the bridgehead over the Berezina at Borisov. The 1st Moscow Motorized Division counterattacked on the 4th, but had to fall back to Orsha, and the Germans followed. On the 5th, Timoshenko ordered the 5th and 7th Mechanized Corps, as well as the 20th Army, to attack German armor near Orsha. The goal for these forces, arrayed between Vivitebsk and Orsha, was to envelop and destroy the 39th Corps, while attacks to the south near Mogilev pinned down the 47th Corps. At this point, combat in the sector was arranged along a relatively straight line, with Vitebsk marking a northern portion running down to Babrusk in the south. Armor was arranged along this line, with more infantry holding the flanks. When plans were made, the 39th Army Corps had an exposed flank that the 5th Mechanized Corps was supposed to strike, but by the time attacks began on June July 6, the 17th Panzer Division was now covering that flank. In early attacks, the 7th Mechanized Corps was driven off with heavy losses. The 14th Tank Division under the 7th Mechanized saw some early success, but a series of conflicting orders and an insistence on frontal attacks led to this opportunity being squandered. The 5th Mechanized Corps saw a little more success. Without knowledge that the 17th Panzer Division had oriented itself on the open flank, Soviet forces slammed headfirst into German tanks. They continued the attacks, but were eventually forced to retreat by July 9th. The two mechanized corps had lost almost 80% of their tanks in foolhardy attacks before the main battle for Smolensk had even begun. With the 5th and 7th mechanized neutered, the 39th Army Corps sliced through the 22nd Army's infantry near Vitebsk, brushing aside Soviet forces in the area as Timoshenko had to surrender the city, granting German forces a bridgehead over the western Divina and seriously endangering the right flank of the western front. In the air, the most generous assessment I can make is that Red, Arm, Red Air Forces in the area fared better than those on the ground, and that's not saying a lot. In fairness, though, the VVS forces had been absolutely obliterated the first week. Of their starting total of about 1,900 aircraft, they had lost over 500 on the first day. By July 1st, they had lost 1,160 of their original number. 
That is to say, by this point, Luftwaffe II was not only qualitatively superior in its pilots and its planes, but it now had more planes than its equivalent Soviet forces. At this point, the front had become so large that both Luftwaffe and Red Air Forces had to distribute their planes only in vital areas. Luftwaffe forces remained dominant in the central sector, with reconnaissance and ground attack craft being integral parts of German victories in the area. In the south, this week began following large-scale armored battles in the Dubno-Brody area. These battles had been successes for Army Group South, inflicting severe material damages but failing to advance like German forces in the center or north. Soviet forces had begun their retreat to pre-war defenses along the Stalin line. Most of the action in the first period of operations, last episode, had been focused on the far northern sector of Army Group South. I hope that makes sense. So the far northern sector of Army Group South. While the moderate south area had seen smaller scale operations. German-Romanian forces arrayed along the Soviet-Romanian border far to the south had yet to be deployed. The advance in this northernmost sector had endangered Soviet forces in the moderate south, forcing their withdrawal back to the Stalin line. Hopefully that makes sense. But a successful Soviet withdrawal was not a sure thing, and the primary goal of Army Group South at this point was the encirclement and destruction of the Soviet 6th and 12th armies as they retreated to the Stalin line. However, a few factors prevented this. Significant German forces were committed in finishing off encircled Soviet units in the Dubno area, or forcing back Red Army infantry in the Lvov sector. For German units that were ready for further advance, several Soviet blocking positions severely impeded movement. The 19th Mechanized Corps held up in advance by the 3rd and 48th Army Corps that began on the 2nd of July, allowing for the successful withdrawal of the Soviet 5th Army and the establishment of defensive positions on the Stalin line. This blocking position was eventually broken on July 4th, and the 14th Panzer Division reached the edge of Southern Stalin line defenses on July 5th. German commanders judged these positions too well defended for immediate attack, and several days were spent allowing reinforcements to arrive. On July 7th, the 13th Panzer Division was able to bypass Soviet defenses along the Slutz River and establish a large bridgehead on the other side. Mikhail Kiponov, commander of the Southwestern Front, ordered the remnants of various mechanized corps to destroy this bridgehead on July 8th, but these clumsy assaults were unsuccessful. The establishment of this bridgehead ripped a hole in the Stalin line that severely compromised existing defensive plans. In a bold move, an ad hoc group formed from the German 3rd Army Corps was able to conduct a rapid advance towards Kiev. Conducted by Job Detlift von Resek, the Kampfgruppe, as such impromptu formations were called, managed to bypass Soviet resistance and advance 80 kilometers on the 8th, capturing the city of Zitomir. Having avoided major losses and sensing few Soviet forces, Rezek continued on, driving another 110 kilometers by early July 9th. By this point, he was less than 20 kilometers from Greater Kiev. However, this did not mean that Kiev was next on the menu. Rezek's advance, important and skillful as it may have been, was conducted on a very narrow line and was only loosely held. It had no prospects of capturing Kiev by itself, and it would take some time for reinforcements to catch up. More so, Kiev was a very important strategic position for the Soviets, and they were flooding it with men and guns that would soon arrive and make capturing it a much greater endeavor than a single Kampfgruppe could hope to conduct. Nor significant reinforcements on hand for the German forces. The 48th Army Corps was engaged against the Soviet Force Mechanized Corps south of Zitomir, as it had been since July 7th. While this battle would break in favor of German forces, it made Kiev an unlikely target for immediate capture. 
Rather, the attention of Hitler, as well as local German commanders, began to be drawn back to the, to the destruction of the Soviet 6th and 12th armies. To do this, they would employ Axis forces along the Romanian border. These forces had been in position since the beginning of the invasion on June 22nd, but had been held back until Soviet strength had been committed. With the exception of seizing bridgeheads on June 30th, major action did not begin until July 2nd. The only tank forces available to the Axis in the area was the Romanian 1st Armored Division, compared to the 2nd and 18th Mechanized Corps held by their immediate opponent, the Soviet Southern Front. Due to a lack of mobile units, not to mention the fact that the Southern Front had been given 10 days to prepare, initial German-Romanian advances were slow. The first day saw an advance of 8 to 10 kilometers against light Soviet resistance, but it took nearly five whole days for the bulk of Axis forces in the area to cross the bridgeheads. With this generous allowance, Southern Front Commander Ivan Tulyanov organized a coordinated combined arms assault against the Romanian Third Army Corps on July 7th. In a happy turn for Red Army forces, this attack proved quite successful. It destroyed several enemy elements entirely and completely held up the Third Army Corps for a week. Romanian divisions tended to have less training than their German counterparts, while lacking armor or sufficiently powerful anti-tank guns. The air war over Ukraine during this period bore a certain similarity to other fronts. Red Air Forces doggedly resisted, doing their best not only to defend their ground forces, but even taking the fight to the enemy whenever they could, despite frequent and heavy losses. VVS forces in the south were noted as having a particular aggression, not present in the center or northern sectors. Rasputitsa, those times in the fall and spring when rain or melting snow turned dirt roads into swamps, was proving particularly bad in Ukraine. A German officer monitoring Army Group South Progress opined on July 7th that the tanks suffocate in the mud of the Ukrainian Shenozim, Black Earth. Unlike in the northern sector, the supply burden could not be shifted to ships on the Baltic. There was also internal conflicts brewing within the German war machine. In the south in particular, demand for resources was split. One faction called for the northern sector of Army Group South to support the right flank of Army Group Center. Another pressed for the capture of Kiev, while a third insisted on the destruction of Red Army units on the right flank of Army Group South. And there was also a pressing need to close the numerous pockets still present in the rear. This period of war in Ukraine was a bit of a mixed bag for, Ver for the Wehrmacht and the Red Army, though still much more positive for the Germans and for the Russians. German forces still had the upper hand, demonstrating superiority in tactics and breaking through the Stalin line. However, their advance failed to break Soviet strength as hoped. For the Soviets, they were providing significant resistance, slowing the German advance and increasingly endangering the right flank of Army Group Center. In the extreme southern sector, Soviet forces had dealt severe blows to primarily Romanian forces. However, the rupture of the Stalin line had been a major loss, and Germany was increasingly nearing economically vital areas. This period saw the beginning of a significant Soviet partisan movement in German-occupied territory. The Soviet partisan movement was not the first to emerge in the Second World War. Pretty much every occupied nation had some form of resistance movement. The French resistance is the most famous, but partisan movements in Yugoslavia, as well as efforts organized by the Polish underground, were in many ways more powerful and cohesive and effective. While the Soviet government had organized very general plans for partisan operations, early activity was conducted not by specially trained agents, but by regular Red Army troops. The rapid German advance had created hundreds, if not thousands, of small and medium-sized pockets, in addition to the larger encirclements. 
Panzer troops had created these encirclements, but it generally fell to the slower-moving infantry to catch up and eliminate them. During this gap, many thousands of Soviet troops escaped. While unable to challenge frontline German troops, they could still wreak havoc behind the front lines, ambushing supply trains, sabotaging infrastructure, and encouraging civilians to resist occupation. These activities quickly began to trouble German commanders, who worried that regardless of how well things might be going on the front lines, this kind of activity could cut their legs out from under them. Fixing it would require transferring more resources to the area, diverting frontline units, and beefing up security divisions. All said, partisan activity at this point was more of an inconvenience for Germany and not an existential threat to their war effort. However, this was just the beginning, and there was no way things were going to get anything but worse for a long time. German plans had been advancing deeper and deeper into the Soviet Union, reducing the number of men available to police the rear areas while increasing the length of supply routes. In, in a phrase, this did not bode well. When analyzing the week's events, we have to assess it in two main dimensions. First, we have to look at events on the ground during this closed period, just how did things go during these seven, actually eight days. In this perspective, Germany's situation was looking good. The events of June had seen the Wehrmacht pummel existing Red Army forces, and the units that replaced them in early July were generally slapped together and forced marched to combat the Germans. German units made quick work of them. However, the fact that the Soviets had even managed to assemble these forces was a surprise. German estimates had claimed that it would take months for additional forces of this caliber to be deployed and didn't even understand the reserve system that the Red Army had in place. From a long-term strategic perspective, things were mixed. As I hinted at, the Soviets were able to raise new forces rapidly on a larger scale. Despite these forces' inferiority, they were buying valuable time for the large-scale evacuation of people and economic resources from vulnerable areas, as well as the organization of defenses along vital points. The Soviet government was also working feverishly to reorganize what remained of the armed forces. And yet, sloppy counteroffensives, perhaps they were inevitable. You know, you have poorly trained soldiers, newly thrown together, thrown against combat-hard German units. Maybe within that context, they were inevitable. But they were still bleeding the Red Army of valuable recruits and equipment. And German advances were still prodigious. And they were rapidly decreasing the valuable buffer space that the USSR needed. In most areas, German forces had to this point suffered relatively few casualties, relatively small percentage of casualties. But equipment losses were much more severe, as well as mounting logistical problems. If Soviet resistance continued to stiffen, Germany would find itself in trouble. All right, that's all for today. Any help with endings? If any of you are good at endings with some pithy lines to end with, e email me. If you want to email me, you can email me at apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. That's apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. Suggestions, comments, compliments, email me. If you're listening on a platform that has reviews, like a Apple Podcasts or whatever it is, drop a review. Be honest. Tell me what I can do better. Until then, I'll see you guys next time.